good morning, Community Lincoln Park. It's great to be with you. My name is John Perrine, as uh, that actually was my lovely wife, Jenna, just in case you didn't know who was up here. Uh, very kind introduction. Um, I, just quickly before we dive into this series to follow up, uh, I know we're a bit out of order here. We're so thankful to hear from our lead pastor, Dave, about finances, where communities at in general. As Jenna mentioned, we are doing great as a location. Uh, I did want to let you know, as a location, one of the things that we don't often talk about that I uh, am especially grateful for is that for all of COVID, we were uh, really allowed to exist because we were part of this broader church network. So community actually helped subsidize much of what we were doing as a community, partly because we were really scattered, partly because the city's very expensive, partly because it's very hard. Uh, with great anticipation and excitement, it feels really great to be 20% ahead of our expected giving this year. Uh, the only caveat to note is that we are about 20% subsidized <laughs> by community in our location. So for the first time in several years as a location of community, it looks like this year we are going to be above zero when it comes to our giving, meeting our expenses, and that is because of your generosity. So once again, can we just give a round of applause to all of you? Thank you. Um, we're really excited. We have a couple new things happening as a community that's going to be really helpful for us. Uh, we're moving towards bringing on a full-time worship pastor. That's something we've been working on. We're having conversations about space, dreaming up what's next as we're starting to just about hit capacity here in Lincoln Hall. So lots of exciting stuff to come. We're going to be sharing more in May uh, at a special lunch after service, but just wanted to let you know the update uh, as we are at this point here in April. So all this to say, let's turn to our series on why church. And what we're going to be doing over these next couple weeks is we're actually going to go back to the Bible and we're going to be tracing some themes, uh, some different pictures, images. Uh, in fact, this week I want to talk about the theme of an image. An image. Now that might not sound thrilling yet, but I, I want to show you how image helps us answer this question of why church. But in order to do so, I thought I would share with you some of the delights, as some of you know, I actually was in the UK this last week. I was doing some postgraduate studies. And so inevitably I've come back, not with a photo I took. I didn't take this photo, don't worry. <laughs> Nor am I gonna walk you through a slideshow of where I've been this last week to make all of you feel jealous. Uh, but I did think I'd bring a nice Gothic cathedral to get us started when it comes to Y Church. So this is actually the York Minster. York Minster. Uh, the church in York dates back to the year 627 AD. Uh, that's kind of fun. This church, though, actually took 250 years to build from the year 1220 to 1472. And one of the last things they built as they were working on this cathedral were these windows called the Great East Window. Now, this is currently, the reason I show it to you, the largest stained glass window in Great Britain. So not in all of Europe, but in Great Britain. And there are 311 separate panels that comprise uh, the story that the left side of the images, if you look closely, is the story of creation in Genesis. And then it moves all the way on the other side, the right side, to this pictures from Revelation, so depicting sort of these end time images. It is a stunning, stunning stained glass uh, that sits as one of the most monumental and significant achievements in stained glass that took place in the medieval ages. However, about 15 years ago, uh, in 2005, uh, the church unfortunately realized that the cornerstone on the right corner of that window was decaying. In fact, they have a very polite British term for it. They call it weathering. The stone was weathering. And as the stone was weathering, unfortunately, the weight of the glass was pressing down, and they were realizing if we don't do something about this, 
in the next 15 to 20 years, this window is going to collapse in on itself. In fact, all of the glass was already starting to bow. So in order to address this problem, they not only had to go back to the foundation stones, shore up the foundation underneath the window, but they went through a 10-year renovation project that cost upwards of $15 million in order to restore every panel of this window. Now, if we go back just one image, uh, I wanted to observe, I, I don't necessarily want this guy's job, right? If you think your job is stressful, this guy was going through some things as he took that window down, and yet in the next image you can see the meticulous work that was required as every panel of glass was either cleaned thoroughly from the years of buildup, grime, uh, or had to be replaced individually in order for the panel itself to be restored. Now that happened 311 separate times. Uh, they put in an estimated 92,000 hours to restore this window. And yet, for the big reveal, uh, just this last year, they reopened the great east window in York and it now shines brilliantly just as it was intended to. I sort of dwell on this very sacred, very cathedrally picture of a stained glass because I think this is going to help us enter into the Bible story in terms of what the church is meant to be. And we're going to make, we're going to uh, walk through three movements as we reflect on the image, the image, right, this week, so that we can answer this question, why church? So the first place I want to take you when we're talking about the image is all the way back to creation, back in the book of Genesis. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Genesis 1. Um, we're going to look at a passage you've inevitably heard, seen before. Let me just go ahead and read it to you. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, small animals that scurry on the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Uh, to just zoom in one more time on where we're focusing, I'm sure you caught it, uh, but it came up over and over again. There's this word. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Uh, this passage, I would suggest to you, if you're trying to get situated within the Christian faith, if you're trying to figure out what all this is about, there, there's few passages as important as this to connect us to what we as human beings are meant to be in relationship to God, right? We actually find there intricately, intimately, right at the beginning of creation, God bestows on us something that seems important, his image, his likeness. Yet, if, if you're someone who's wrestling with big questions, uh, the first question I think that's very natural to ask is, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean? to be made in the image of God? Well, understandably, this question has consumed scholars and philosophers and theologians for thousands and thousands of years. Yet there's been some interesting breakthroughs recently as we've pondered the context that this story was written in. And as you go back into the ancient literature, there's actually two parallels, only two, in the other religions that surrounded Israel that help clarify quite a bit what's going on when God says God is giving us his image. So the first parallel, interestingly, is one that was connected somewhat here to Chicago. Uh, so if you go down to University of Chicago, 
There's this amazing institute, it's called the Institute for the Ancient Study of Cultures. And uh, in this institute, there's this photo, this is from down at the University of Chicago, where archeologists for the last 50 years have been collecting all of these artifacts from around what they call the ancient Near East, uh, that area around Israel, uh, Iran, Iraq, where they've been collecting artifacts on dig sites to try to figure out what did cultures believe in the days when the Bible was written. What they found are a number of statues, lots and lots and lots of little statues. And this leads to the first significance of the image. Uh, if you were a practicing religious person, which everyone was uh, back in the ancient Near East, you would likely have a statue of the god that you wanted to worship. So let me show you two statues. Uh, the one on the left here is the god Baal. Baal, you, maybe if you've read uh, the Old Testament, you heard about Baal. Baal was the god of, fer of fertility, of the rain. Uh, it was a very powerful god. And yet we literally have here, again, just down the road, I can't help but brag about Chicago when Chicago's got some uh, skin in the game. We've got the statue of Baal that we've found. There were tons of statues like this. And the idea was that the statue was an image, right? The statue contained the image of a god. Now, no one thought the image was the god, right? It wasn't like if you had the statue in your house, Baal was living in your kitchen. But the statue represented something essential of the god. And in fact, the beliefs at the time were that if you had this image of the god with you, then some essence, some power, some authority from that God would be present in your home or in the temple that the image resided. Uh, this other image on the right is Asherah. Asherah also is a very popular image, often put on top of poles. So you, if you read the Old Testament, you find over and over these references to the Asherah poles. And the idea, again, is that the essence, the power, the authority of the God was represented. Uh, something is there. Now, if you're tracking with the book of Genesis then, what you begin to discover is that Genesis is claiming something entirely unique that was not present in any other religious belief in that time. And that was that the image of God was not going to reside in a statue that the people of Israel were supposed to worship, but that instead the image of God was actually going to dwell or reside in human beings. Importantly, men and women together would reflect the image of God, something about the essence, the power, the authority of God would reside in human beings. Now, there's one other parallel, interestingly, that makes just a little bit more sense where we're going. And uh, forgive me, I should have warned you. This is a bit of a nerdy uh, teaching today. So we're, you're, you're already with me. It's too late to leave, but uh, here we go. Some of you will love this, and I know for the rest of you, you know, take your phones out. It's fine. Uh, we'll get to the end. You're going to have a good time. Um, here's the other uh, parallel that we have to the image. There's a quote uh, that I have from Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. He's one of the uh, most reputable Old Testament scholars currently still alive. He says, it's now generally agreed upon that the image of God reflected in human persons is after the manner of a king who establishes statues of himself to assert his sovereign rule where the king himself cannot be present. So this uh, understanding actually resided a ton in Egypt. So I'm going to give you just again one last little fun image. Here's the Pharaoh. And, and so there's these two ideas kind of operating around Israel at the time. One is that statues of gods reflect the image of the God. The other in Egypt especially was that the image of God could reside in Pharaoh. And Pharaoh would extend 
would actually set forth the God's will, the God's power, the God's authority. And so this is why you had to follow what Pharaoh was doing because Pharaoh had the image of God. If Pharaoh had God's power, God's authority, God's wisdom, you find across Egyptian culture, all of these magnificent deifying-like symbols placed not only on the Pharaoh, but across from pyramids to sphinxes. So if that kind of steeps you a bit in what's going on, the only reason I draw your attention to it is that I just want to share with you how profound it is that we are called, that we are told that we actually extend the image of God. If we could go back to that passage in Genesis 1, 26, uh, what we're going to find is that our image is actually connected to this sort of reign and responsibility that God gives us as human beings. As we walk around, I think the best word I can offer you is that we're meant to extend. We are intended to extend God to the world around us. Uh, at our best, we will do this responsibly. We will do this humbly. We will recognize that we are not ourselves the gods that walk around this earth, but instead we bear the image of God, and that image is sacred, that image is holy, and that image has incredible potential to form and transform the world around us. Um, as I was reflecting on what it means to kind of walk around as an image of God, uh, trying to figure out how to even make sense of this in our contemporary world, uh, I was struck that one of the things that happens uh, when my wife and I go back to Ireland is that we find ourselves going through Dublin's airport. Dublin uniquely has a U.S. embassy pre-clearance within the airport. If you've ever flown through Dublin, it's really nice. Uh, it allows you to really quickly move through customs so that you can go where you need to go. But the funny thing that strikes me every time I go through this embassy is you're there in Dublin, right? It's foreign land. They talk strange. Uh, there's lots of weird things going on. And yet you enter into the airport, and there, almost like an intrusion into Irish culture, is this very U.S.-based embassy. Every officer sitting there who's going to talk to you is an American. Uh, every staff member is an American. And there, always strikingly, at the back of this preclearance in Dublin is a picture of the current president of the United States. So every time I've gone through, the president is always there sort of like watching you, which is very intense, uh, especially depending on, you know, which president it is and how anyone feels about the president. They're always there. And yet I'm struck that it really is a concrete example, even today, of how the image, the image is there to extend power, right? What it, the image is saying is, with all the authority and responsibility of the United States, uh, the government is here. And if we let you in, the government of the U.S. has made a decision to let you back into our country. Uh, this also happens when you're traveling with a passport, right? Now, some places that you go to with a U.S. passport might be more stressful than others. Uh, some places that have gone with a U.S. passport, it feels like almost a blank check, like no one can touch me here because I represent, I extend, uh, when I have this in my hands, I am a citizen of the United States of America, and that grants me power, grants me privilege, that grants me responsibility. Sometimes it can be stressful, right? Sometimes it causes further questions as to why I'm in a certain place that I'm in, but is that not how even today uh, we can find ourselves extending the image? And so I think the first question as we reflect on image is, what image is your life extending, right? Who, who is your life extending as you walk around the city, as you enter into your workplace, as you live in your neighborhood, 
as you occupy space on this planet, whose image are you extending? Yet if the image is so important to the early book of Genesis, you might already be wondering, something surely does go wrong though, right? With us just all being these little statues, these little image bearers of God walking around the planet. So quite quickly, the Bible is going to take us into this story where the Bible is going to claim that the image is unfortunately broken. The image becomes broken that we are meant to be reflecting and extending around the earth. Now I say broken very intentionally because the Bible never says the image goes away, right? This is very important to the Bible. The image is always there, but the image is kind of like that stained glass that I started with. Uh, As time goes on, as choices are made, as behaviors work their way out, in fact, very quickly, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, before anything even begins, Adam and Eve make this choice to eat the fruit, and what we find is that the image becomes kind of like cracked and fractured, right? Like you can still tell that the image is there, but now as their sons are living, as Cain and Abel are trying to figure things out, Cain is actually going to murder Abel, And it's like very quickly the book of Genesis shows something has gone wrong, something is breaking, something is bending, something is getting warped out of shape when it comes to the image of God that we were meant to inhabit. Uh, One of my favorite passages, we could go a lot of different places to reflect on what it means that the image has become broken, Uh, but here's one of my favorites. This is actually in the book of Jeremiah. We're jumping ahead in Israel's story. We're kind of moving through to this different point in the Old Testament. Here's what I love about this image in Jeremiah. Uh, If you actually go back and sit in this chapter, Jeremiah very intentionally is doing some poetry in how he's condemning how the Israelites are living this sort of broken image of God in the world. But he's going to begin by calling them back to the image they were meant to be extending. He kind of has this hopeful start where he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride, speaking to Israel, you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. I was reading an Old Testament scholar who said, it's almost like God is saying, the garden was starting to be planted by how Israel was reflecting and extending the image. Yet, tragically, quickly, if we go to the next uh, passage in Jeremiah 2.5, God is going to say this, to Israel. He says, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. If you're kind of tracking with this play on pictures, why I like this passage in Jeremiah when we're talking about broken images, is that God is saying, you followed little statues. You, you went to become like these little statues that you thought would give you something, and instead you found Not only were they worthless, but you've now become worthless. You're not producing any fruit that you were intended to. However, here's the kicker. This is a passage you've probably heard before. Yeah, I just love and am haunted by this image. Jeremiah is going to say in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Um, This picture, I know we've kind of moved over from like statues, images, into cisterns, but I I think they're actually talking about the same thing. They're talking about how the image that was meant to be extended has now become broken. God is saying, you you were meant to live off of something, right? You, You need actually in this picture of water, 
you need water to survive. Uh, in Israel, the rain season is very short but very intense. Most of the year is filled with drought. So what Israelite farmers would have to do if you wanted to survive is you would dig these very deep wells on your property to capture as much water as you could from the rainy seasons, and then you'd have to cover them so that that water wouldn't disappear, so you'd have water either to water your crops or even to live off of yourself. So these were called cisterns. I'll show you a picture because I'm into pictures this week, so you're welcome. <laughs> here we go. Uh, so here are some cisterns that we've found in Israel. And the one on the right obviously is full of water. Uh, this is encouraging. This is what you need. This is what you want. The ones on the left, though, are empty. And the problem is that what would happen in these cisterns is that you dig into the ground, the ground would still be dirt, and then you'd have to cover with this special limestone, sort of concrete, early concrete-esque substance. And if you didn't do a good job, if you made any mistakes in covering the walls of your cistern, then the limestone would crack and the water would seep back out into the ground. So you'd literally have rain come, you'd think this is really good, your cistern would fill up, then you'd cover the cistern, hoping that in a few months' time when the rain was gone, it'd be ready for you, and you'd return to this well you thought was waiting for you, and instead you'd find it empty. If we go back to this passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2.13, this, I think, is what it means to live as a broken image. What we find is that this substance, this source of water that we were intended to rely on, this very thing that we need, uh, instead of turning to God for the spring of living water, water that would just keep flowing, we instead have tried to dig cisterns for ourselves as images. We've tried to rely on our own resources. And in so doing, any mistakes we make, which are inevitable, are going to find the walls of these cisterns cracked and the water that we so desperately need is going to seep back out into the world. I, I like this verse to help us think a little bit more robustly about what sin means today. I know sin can be a really hard word. It can be a heavy word. Uh, sin often can be focused on moral behaviors. It can often sound sometimes like Christian people are always telling the world about all the bad things they're doing, and that's sin, and that's really hurt and offended God. Instead, I think this helps us, even as Christians, be far more robust in what we're saying when we talk about sin. Sin is not merely a behavior. Sin is a broken well. It is a broken cistern. It is a source that we are relying on that is not working. Every time we turn to it, we're going to find over and over again that even if it starts with a little bit of water, instead, inevitably, as the pressures come, as life begins to build, as the drought gets longer and longer, we're going to find the water is simply running out. And for us, I think we feel then, uh, as image bearers, as those who are meant to extend the image, we find it broken, these systems that we're relying on to offer ourselves out to the world. So when you find yourself struggling with depression, when you feel the pressures of anxiety, when friendships and relationships are falling apart, when your job isn't living up to what you hope your job would be, you find that the image, instead of there for you to offer out, is broken. The cistern is empty we need to find the living waters we were intended for. This is where the story of the Bible takes us. It doesn't leave us here with a broken image, but instead, incredibly, if you can jump with me to one last leap into the New Testament, uh, we are going to find that in Jesus Christ, the image of God is restored. The image is restored. Now, I couldn't make this up. 
This is why I had to show you all that Old Testament stuff. Well, I didn't have to show you the pictures. The pictures were just for me, if I'm being honest. But I had to show you the Old Testament stuff uh, because I wanted to take you now to this passage that's going to come from the Apostle Paul. So, I mean, picture this, right? You're, you're living in uh, the Roman Empire. You're living, you're perhaps a Jewish person. You've read all of these stories. And even if you haven't fully connected all the pieces, you know that there's something broken about the image. You know you're like meant to be the image of God. You're like seeing this contested and trying to play itself out. And all of a sudden you get this letter delivered to your church from this leader in the early Christian movement. And he's going to say these words. Jesus... Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him together. Let's go to the next one. Uh, Here we go. The image is here. In fact, uh, what we needed, what we didn't even know we needed, was the true and restored image to come be among us. And this is why I showed you those statues. Uh, I think, again, there's this temptation to like worship little imitations, uh, little fake images that we surround ourselves with. Yet what Paul says is the true image, the image of God was here, came down from heaven. Actually, the image that created and now rules over every image is here among us. And we have the opportunity to enter into relationship with the true image of God that we were always intended for, and yet that we have become these broken, warped, and fractured reflections of. Paul doesn't stop here. He keeps going. Notice where he takes us. He, Jesus, the image, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then here's the last kicker. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is one of those moments where Paul captures the whole story of the Bible in these five verses. But notice, if you go back one slide to verse 17 to 18, the church, the body, is actually part of this plan of what it means to restore the image so, so this is very clearly at one of the heartbeats of the Apostle Paul's theology. This is what Paul wants us to understand. This is what Paul believes is taking place in Jesus. Paul says, in Jesus, the image of God that's now here is going to actually pull us back into the image, is going to restore us into the image we were intended to be, so that when you take place in the church, when you enter into the church, you now are going to be formed more and more into the image, and you're going to be able to offer that image back out in a reconciling way to the world. Let me show you just two other quick examples from Paul to to show you. This isn't an accident in Paul's theology. This is the center of what Paul's trying to tell us. This is from 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul's going to say this, And we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. We, we are becoming, once again, the image that we were intended to be with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Uh, Here's one final example. Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that that he, Jesus, might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
Like all these images are crashing in together, together. This family is coming together. It's looking more and more like the image of God who is there in Jesus Christ. And as the church is doing this, the church is now gonna go out and reflect that image. It's gonna shine the image out to the world. Uh, so let me just put, throw back up once more those pictures that I started with. Is it possible that the church is here to help restore the image of God in you? That part of what we are doing by gathering every week, Sunday after Sunday, part of what we're doing by gathering together in smaller groups across the city, uh, part of what we're doing by worshiping the living God is that slowly but surely, much like the care and dedication that this woman is giving to every individual piece of glass, you are being cleansed. You're being, you're being reshaped. Uh, some parts of us may even get replaced uh, that became broken or fractured or damaged. But here in the church, you're actually slowly but surely being shined back into the very piece of the image you were meant to reflect. Now this leads me to one last thought for you, and you might be wondering at this point, like how is this answering the question of why church? Uh, what is the point of why church in all of this talk about images? Well, Here's really my only big idea to leave you with this morning. I want to encourage you that the reason why the image matters so much to us is because if you really pay attention to how this plays itself out across the Bible, the good news is that the image of God is not just about you. It is actually about us. So I think for many of us, many of us, we live with the pressure that on our own, we're meant to somehow be the fullness of the image. That you're somehow meant to have this perfect, happy, purposeful wife, husband, two kids, uh, successful 401k, uh, go to vacation in the perfect spot every year, happy-go-lucky existence where your Instagram always shines perfectly and connects every person to all of the amazing food you're eating, to the coffee that you get to drink, and all of the hippest spots that you were the first to discover. <laughs> Instead, the church is here because we cannot on our own fully live out this image that we were intended. In fact, some of us here in this room have incredible jobs that are making purposeful differences in this world. Some of us in this room are parents, and we find ourselves living with the burden and the joy every single week of raising up new children. Some of us in this room are married uh, and find that there, in that wonderful relationship with our spouse, we found a partner and a helper that is there to help bring out and support all of who we are. And some of us in this room are not married, and we are frustrated, and we are tired, and our jobs are terrible, and we are looking around and wondering, what part of the image do I get to be? Here's Paul's encouragement to us. It's just one last thought on what it means to be the image. He says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we've been baptized into one body by one spirit and we share the same spirit. Now here's what's discouraging about this verse. Some of you are stuck where you are. Some of you are more broken and damaged as image bearers than others of us and that's frustrating. Like it's very difficult to find yourself categorized into one of these places, but here's the gift and the relief of the church. Together, together we are actually working as a whole body. And the way that Paul draws out this image is that he says, if you're a hand, guess what? You get to help as the hand do things that the foot does not. <laughs> if you are a foot, 
You get to bear certain things that others of us do not have to bear. And instead of resenting that role we have to play, we actually get to share gifts with each other that we otherwise would not have because we are part of this one body. We are part of this restoring image. And so my prayer for you is that rather than live alone with the frustrated position that you may find yourself in, uh, whatever image you are currently carrying as an image bearer of God, instead the church could actually become this community that not only brings you in, begins restoring you, begins cleansing you, begins helping you to shine once more, but that the church would actually be this sharing community that also offers to you the very weaknesses, uh, the very weak spots, the pressure points. They're going to come in and they're going to help hold those gaps with you in ways that you never could be held if you were just out there on your own uh, trying to carry this full image by yourself. Let me pull up one more time that picture lane of the church, the stained glass. This is how I want to close for you. Uh, as you look at this glass, there's a reality if you, if you ponder this metaphor with me one more time. I think it, I think it holds. I think it works. That uh, to truly get up close and personal, you find that these individual pains on their own are quite dull <laughs> and uninteresting, right? Like if you were to actually really get up close, that nice little blue pane sitting about six feet up right there in the middle, three panels in, that pane is not a very exciting color. But together, when that pane is restored and the other colors around it are restored and the colors begin working together, as the image starts to expand, as the panels start to stretch out, we find that instead of just one image bearer being something beautiful, captivating, and delightful. Instead, together, the whole image shows us something more extraordinary and profound than we could ever glimpse on its own. This is what the church is meant to be. This is what our community right here in Lincoln Park is striving to become. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we can play our part in this beautiful tapestry that is God's kingdom, God's people, coming and renewing and restoring the world to the way God intended it to be. To that end, let me pray over us and let me give you just a minute to pray as we ponder what it means to be the image of God. Jesus, I pray even now for those who are frustrated, those who are coming in hurting, those who perhaps have been disappointed about that small part that they are currently playing, whether it's here in the city, whether it's here in our church. I pray, Jesus, that as we, as we enter into this story, we see the sweep of the story that you've been telling. I pray that even now there would just be this small encouragement to keep going keep being cleaned and restored, to keep opening their lives up, to keep being conformed more and more to that part that they have to play. And Jesus, for those of us here who have been given many gifts, uh, who have found ourselves carrying responsibilities, privileges, burdens, whether it's in our jobs here in the city, 
the role we play in our family, the relationships we currently have. Lord, help us, help us keep being drawn back to you, keep being restored and conformed, keep shaping us so that instead of that image being about ourselves, Lord, that we, would, we too would play our part, that we too would fit into the hole and shine out the light, the love that you've poured into us for the city. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.